It is good to be here this morning, and I, again, appreciate the privilege of being here. It's the first time I don't have one of my children here, so I have nobody to embarrass today, and that makes me feel badly, but anyhow. I have two children graduate from here, and one of them, my oldest son, uh, some of you have prayed for, he had a motorcycle accident this summer, is presently recuperating, had it's been a long process, and it will still be, but for those of you who are here who might have been praying for him, we thank you very, very much for your prayers and appreciated the constant calls from the college asking how he's doing. So again, we do appreciate the concern and the care for us during this very trying time, but challenging time, but a good time. Please turn with me, if you will, to Second Corinthians chapter 5 and 6. This is a very personal book by the Apostle Paul, one in which he addresses very extensively his own personal life and uh, opens himself up as he does nowhere else in any of his epistles. And as he does so in this passage, he is a lot of it is defending himself because there are charges against him by people, and a large part of this is a defense. And part of it, the answering of it is right here in this passage where, in fact, he states in chapter 5, verse 18, he says, one thing I want to share with you, he says that God has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. And it is in the process of a defense of his ministry and that aspect of the ministry of reconciliation, he goes on to talk about himself as being one worthy of God's ministry and one worthy of their love. And as he does so, he vindicates himself in this passage and talks about the ministry he has in verse 20 as ambassadors for Christ and as a labor with God in the following verses. But as he does so in his own defense, part of this is so applicable to us. So what I want to do this morning is, as we deal with this passage, bring it directly to our lives as we begin and look at this as it would relate to us personally in our own personal walk with God. And certainly we identify with Paul in the various titles that he gives himself here. You notice the statement that he makes, first of all, he is an ambassador for Christ. And again, as ambassadors, we do not represent ourselves. That is not our role. Our whole responsibility is not to build ourselves, to represent ourselves, to magnify ourselves, but purely to represent God and Christ in this context directly. That is the calling we have. What happens to us is personally immaterial. What happens to him is very material. And back again to John the Baptist statement, he must increase, we must decrease. So the first statement, he says, we are ambassadors for Christ. The second statement he says in chapter 6, verse 1, we're fellow workers with God. The most incredible thing for us is any ministry we have is great to work with people, but to realize we never, never work alone. And i got to tell you, there are going to be times out there where you feel very, very much alone. Very much alone. But the beautiful part is you are never alone. And the task is not yours. The task is his. And so what we're doing, we are laborers together with him. And that is our role and responsibility. The other statement he makes in chapter 6, verse 4. He says in there, And everything commending ourselves as servants of Christ. The word is diakonoi. We get our word deacons from. We're all deacons of God. We're all servants of God. And our role is ambassadors for God fellow workers with God, and then the servants of God. And so that's the threefold responsibility he says he sees himself having. And certainly it is no different for those of us who are here this morning. 
It is in that regard, though, in chapter one, where he, uh, chapter six, verse one, where he addresses his role. He goes on in a parenthetical statement, verse two. Then he comes back in verse three to this statement, giving no offense for anything, in order that the ministry may not be discredited. As an ambassador for God, as a labor together with Him, as a minister, a servant, if you will, of His, I am not to discredit the gospel, the ministry, in any way whatsoever. Now. If I were to ask you this morning how in the world you might be able to do that, keep from discrediting the ministry by your life, you might come up with a whole list of things. And I would dare say that most of us would uh, list some actions that we think if we did would discredit or dishonor God. It isn't an action he addresses here. It's an attitude. And I, I think for those of us facing whatever challenges God gives us in life, so many times it is not just the actions that are important, it's the attitude that we have, and maybe more so than anything else, the attitude that we have that is so crucial for us in ministry and life. So I want you to look at this with me because he addresses this in this passage, and I, I want you to go down with me. What I'm going to do is, is I want to start, okay, at the bottom of this passage on purpose because it's what he moves toward. And I want you to sense his attitude with me, and then I want you to come back and we'll go verse by verse through here to see how in the world he maintains this kind of an attitude. So go with me, if you will, down to verse 8 of chapter 6. In the context of this passage, he is talking about his ministry, and, and there are some contrasts here in this passage, the negative and the positive part of it. And the first three are how people look at him. The next six are how he looks at himself and his ministry. And, and I want you to look at the first three, first of all, because they are the reality of life. It is the evaluation of others of our ministry. Notice what he says in here. And, and, and some of it is very, very negative. Some of it is very, very positive. And, and I would remind you as we look at this list. With every negative, there is a positive. With every positive, there is a negative. And it depends on how you want to face life, how you want to look at life, and it makes all the difference in the world. But, but look at this, because the first three are how people look at us. And he says in here, he says, there are people, he says, notice my ministry. My ministry is characterized by glory on one hand and by dishonor on the other hand. Some people hold him in very high regard. Other people... Uh, they have no esteem for him whatsoever. I got to tell you, that is a part of balance of life. It will be. Uh, there will be people. I thought, uh, you know, the greatest thing since sliced bread. I thought of something this morning come out here. I've never, ever used this before because it's an illustration. You have to explain the illustration. If you have to explain the illustration, you had not to use it. But, if you will, the greatest thing since colored margarine. Do you know, I remember this morning driving out here when I was a little kid. Up in Canada, since Canada's on the front page today with a secessionist boat up there. I am from British Columbia, lived in Ontario for some years. But anyhow, in British Columbia when I was a kid, they couldn't, we, they couldn't sell colored margarine. Uh, it was white margarine, and when you got it, though, they had these little things that you could break into a plastic bag, and you'd squeeze it and make it colored, but you couldn't sell it colored. And I remember the day in fifth grade when they came up with colored margarine. Taxis and everything were hauling margarine to the stores for the first time selling colored margarine up in British Columbia. But anyhow, this is the greatest thing. Some people think you're the greatest thing since colored margarine. Whatever it is, some people think you're the greatest thing that ever happened. Other... You're the worst gift God ever gave them. Um, that is the reality, and that's what he faced. He is in a church, dealing with a church here that he planted himself. 
people very strongly supporting his ministry, but other people tearing at him very, very strongly. And much of this book is addressed to defending himself against those charges. The, the next thing, in, in light of this, it's the same uh, carry-on of this. Notice the next one. He says, not only glory and dishonor, but evil report and good report. Some people are saying such positive, glowing things about his ministry. And they, uh, their sermons are great. They, they certainly make an impact in my life. They change it. The sermons, on the other hand, some are saying are terribly boring. The man doesn't care. And you, you get this good report, bad report. I love what somebody said. And I think of this for a while. No evil report, however false, can harm me. Just think about that for a while. No evil report, however false, can harm me. But listen to the other side. No good report, however true, can distract me. That's a thought. You know, so many times people say stuff against you. As long as you know the character of your life is what ought to be, and that's what matters. And they will say it, friends. I've got to tell you, they will say it. But you know what? No evil report, no matter how false, can harm me. But you know, the other side is really very important. No good report, however true, can distract me. And so many times when people begin to affirm, all of a sudden you get carried away and distracted even by the affirmation itself or how important or how good you are. And that cannot be either. Either one of them cannot be. And then he makes this statement here. He says, in the latter part of that, he says, not only glory and dishonor, evil report, good report, but there are people who regard me as a deceiver. And yet he says, and in this one he's not going to let go. He changes the construction here emphatically. He says, there's no way I'm going to let this go. I am not a deceiver. I'm not a liar. I am an honest man. It's interesting because what happened is he said he wanted to come back by Corinth to go up on his way up north into Philippi, Macedonia. And what happened is because of some tensions in the church and because he almost died, he says, I couldn't make it by. So they said, you're a liar because you promised and you didn't keep your promise. And this is the kind of stuff he faced. But now look at how he says his own ministry. And I want you to see it with me because in the next six things that happen, they are not things that one side is true and the other side is not true. Okay? These first three, one side was true, the other side wasn't. This case is not true. All of these things are true. But it all depends on how you look at it. Look with me at the six things that follow here. Notice, first of all, he says in the verse that follows, as unknown and yet well known. Saul of Tarsus, very popular, very capable, very gifted man. All of a sudden, uh, when his life changes so drastically and he becomes, at one point even, as he talks about, he says, I'm in prison. I think as we look at it, we think, boy, this is a great thing. And look at this and how people esteemed him. They didn't. Many of the believers saw him as a common criminal, and they felt there must be some cause that Paul's here. But he says, you know, it's amazing. I'm unknown on the one side, and people don't know me. I'm not very important. But i got to tell you, I'm very well known. I, I can't come to this pastor without reflecting my own father, so you allow me to do that. My dad was a missionary in Africa, and I think he was in business with a man, and uh, that man became very, very successful. My father was saved, came down to college, Bible college down here. My mother went to the mission field, served out there for his life, drowned out there. And in the process of his life, not well known by people here. You won't know my father. Didn't write any books. People aren't going to remember him that way. But you know what? Not well known, uh, but very well known. God knew him for one. Those into whose life he poured his life, they knew him. He opened up an area of ministry that had not been opened before. 
And when he died, it was an accident that happened out there. And when he died, they thought of shipping his body home. And the African said, no, his heart was here. Please leave his body here as well. They did the funeral, and, and the funeral was done by a man. And what he used to do, he had three men who did the preaching. And on Wednesdays, he would teach them the lesson. And on Saturday, the fellow who was going to preach would preach it back to the others. And then he would preach Sunday morning. So they rotated this way. He's no longer there to give them the sermon. And they, they talked about it. He said, you know, they have a house. And they build this house with a mud wall. And then they put a center pole up the middle and poles that come out like this, leaning on the outer walls. And then they put the thatch roof on top. And you take the center pole out and the roof will fall in. And they said the center pole is gone. i got to tell you, there are going to be places in life that God will call you. And people will not really know you. But God will know you. And those into whose life you pour your life, they will know you. And if you become obsessed with the fact that nobody knows you, instead of obsessed with the fact that God is using you to impact lives and make a difference, and it may be even be in the ministry that you're doing even now, not well known, but before God and before those into whose life you pour your life, you're very well known. Notice the second statement he makes. Not only that, he says, but he says, dying, yet behold, we live. The Apostle Paul was dying. He writes in the early part of this book, he says, well, you didn't realize, he says, I almost did die. In fact, I came so close to death, and I want you to know that. Uh, you are not at the stage where you think of that. Uh, my son thought he was invincible until he got hit by a car, but, uh, and life has changed rather drastically for him, but for you who are younger, it seems like life will go on forever. It wasn't that way for Paul. He was physically dying, but you see, you can concentrate on the negative part, and you can walk into somebody's life who's suffering physically, and they can complain, and they can gripe, and they can do whatever about their circumstances. On the other hand, there are those you meet who are going through incredible physical problems, and yet they're always positive, and that's Paul. He says, you know what, it's true, I'm dying, and you can look at it that way if you want to, but the other side, praise God, I'm still alive. Notice the next one, if you will. He says, not only that, not only praise God I'm alive, but notice this, as punished or if you will as disciplined and yet not put to death. The proud apostle Paul, as for many of us, needed much of the discipline of God and God disciplines those whom he loves, so all of us are going to face discipline. And he says, you can concentrate on the tough times God has taken you through and you can cry out to God because you wonder why in the world God makes you suffer the way you're suffering. But he says, you know, you look at all of this, and you see on the one side I can concentrate and say, look at all the pain I'm going through, and God says, and Paul says, no, not that. He says, praise God for the fact, although he's disciplined us, he has not put us to death. See, every side of this, there's a negative, there's a positive. Both of them are very true. And before I even go on with the rest of the list, because it's a great list here, I just remind you, many of you today, are looking at negative situations you face. And they're true. The pressure on you here at school. Maybe the financial pressure. Maybe the academic pressure. Maybe social pressure. Maybe emotional pressure. They're there. There's no denying of that. And that's not what Paul's doing. He doesn't deny those things. But on the other hand, he concentrates on the fact that counterbalancing those are the incredibly positive things of what God is doing. And you choose today which one of those you want to focus on because they're both true. And the attitude you have and the focus you have is that which can either dishonor or discredit the gospel or can enhance the ministry. Notice the next one just quickly. Not only as unknown yet known, not only dying and behold we live, not only disciplined, but uh, again, 
not put to death, but sorrowful yet always rejoicing. There are pains in life. And uh, when I was in school, the loss of my father was a terrible thing to me because I loved him very dearly. I miss him very much. Uh, even at this stage in life, there are times I wish I could talk to him, and I, he's been gone from my life these many years. And you look at those losses in life, and I watch even the struggle that my younger brother went through at the, at the time that it happened. You see that stuff that happens, and you see we do sorrow. There's pain in life. But you know the other side. We're always, 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 always rejoicing. Counterbalancing the sorrow that is there, the pain that is there, is an awesome joy that God has given to us because we believe in him and because we walk with him. Notice the next one just quickly. As, not only that, as poor and yet making many rich. Some of you are going to be called the mission field. I've got to tell you something. It's not a life of wealth. Uh, you're going to be called the ministry. It's not a life of wealth either, but at least maybe there's more there than there is in some mission fields. Uh, I love to be around missionaries. I was raised by missionary parents. I served as a missionary. I just love being around missionaries. Uh, if I see someone, I have a chance, I hang around them because they understand the values of life. It isn't about things. It isn't about possessions. They have nothing, in a sense, and yet they, they're poor. Poor people. You say, where are you going to live in your time? In fact, let me tell you what. I was, did a conference up in Canada, Ontario, Canada, in a town where they had a GM plant. And so they, they took, it was a missionary conference, a lot of missionaries were there. So one day they took the missionaries down through this plant, and I was able to go with them. And so we finished going through this plant, and we come back to the uh, office, and some of the people from the church were there, and they described these missionaries, all the benefits they get for working for GM. And they describe about retirement and medical and all this kind of stuff. And I knew what was happening in the hearts of those missionaries. And I walked out to the car with two of them. As we got in, the one said to the other, he says, I wouldn't trade what I have for what they have any day. These are people who are poor. And you know what? They make many people rich. You know, you can dwell on how little you have, or you can dwell on the fact that God uses you to touch other people's lives, whether you have little or whether you have much. Notice the last one, and it's, it's, he climaxed it with this one. What a credible climax. Having absolutely nothing, and yet I possess everything. Paul was just like Christ. I, I mean, you know, we want to pattern ourselves after somebody. How about Paul? How about Christ? I mean, what better could you do? No home, no possessions, no family. I mean, nothing. Nothing. Possessing absolutely nothing. And yet, you know what? Possessing everything. Some of us in life will possess everything, or some of us will minister to people in life who possess everything, and yet when it's all said and done, they really have nothing. It is so great to be with people who, although they have nothing, they, they recognize in Christ they have everything. So I stop with that because that's the context to which he builds. He says, all right, that's the attitude. The attitude, there's going to be the negative part of life. There's going to be the positive part of life. And they're both true. And one is not, you know, false and the other true. You pick, take your pick. No, they're both true. But the question is, how are you going to respond to these things? Will you focus on the negative? Will you focus on the fact you're dying? Will you focus on the fact you're disciplined? Will you focus on the fact you're sorrowing? Will you focus on the fact that you're poor? Will you focus on the fact you have nothing? Or 
Well, you focus on the fact that, praise God, you're alive. Praise God, He's not put you to death. Praise God, He's at work in your life to give you something to rejoice over. Is that what you will do? Because your attitude will either discredit the ministry or honor the ministry to which you've been called. And that's basically the issue. Now, the question is, how? How do we maintain such an attitude? Uh, and, and I want to take you back now to the verses that precede this because I want you to look with me at that because so, so crucial for us. How do I maintain this? There are those who would say, well, the way to maintain an attitude like this is to somehow pretend that there are no problems and uh, somehow sort of just avoid the reality of life. And friend, you can't do that because as Paul goes back to this preceding verses and he starts with this whole section, he starts out, he says in verse 4, and commending in everything, commending ourselves servants of Christ and much endurance. And then he has nine different things listed. Afflictions, hardships, distresses, verse 4, beatings, imprisonments, tumults, verse 5, labor, sleeplessness, hunger, verse uh, 5. Nine things, three categories. Now, I just stop with this to just say to you, the fact of life is, the fact of life is, there is pain in life. And if you're going to be involved in ministry, I tell you, there's pain in ministry. Incredible heartache and pain in ministry. There is no greater calling in the world, no more exciting calling in the world than to minister for Jesus Christ. None. But it is painful. And and, and to say that it's not is wrong, because it is. I will never forget a time in seminary, uh, when I was teaching in the seminary, they brought in a speaker, and he spoke on the heartache and pain of ministry. He'd been in business, he had a nice house, he had cars, his family was doing well. He felt called to ministry. He left all of us, sold it all, paid his way through college, paid his way through seminary, took his first church right here in California, from back in the Midwest, and I tell you, they killed him. It was a horrible experience. They've done that to pastors that followed in that same church, but it was, it was just a terrible experience. And he came to chapel and he shared so openly. Let me tell you a reaction. The students reacted very positively to it, actually. One of the faculty members walked out. I'll never forget the statement. He says, I have never heard so much verbal vomit in one half hour in my life. And I thought, that's not fair. So they brought in somebody a few weeks later to talk about how positive ministry is. And I knew that the fellow they brought in was a superintendent of an area here in California. And he had several churches he was about to close because of the problems in those churches. And yet he painted it as being so positive. I got to tell you, ministry is exciting. Walking with God is exciting. It is. It is the most exciting thing in the world. But I got to tell you, you must face the reality that problems exist. They do. Trials exist. They do. And to avoid that, to try to say, well, I need a positive feeling by saying there are no problems in life. There are mega problems in life. There are. And the three categories here are interesting because just briefly, and rather than dealing with each of them individually, let's just deal with them at the categories. The first three, he deals with afflictions, hardships, and distresses, are things that are brought on just by the very nature of ministry. Uh, The first one, some have suggested things that you uh, might be able to avoid. The other one, things that are unavoidable. The last one is in here, by the way, that the statement he makes of distresses has to do with a time when you feel like the, the walls are coming in and, and they're pressing in on either side and above you see no way out, in front of you see no way out, the side you see no way out. You feel like somehow it has just got you in there and there's no way to get out of here. And my friend, those times come, okay? That's reality. They come. 
And they are part and parcel of ministry. They're not separated from it. They are there. And there are times when you look and say, my, this is what ministry is. Yes, it's what ministry is. Praise God it is. But now notice the next one. And, and you, the next one are not things inherent in ministry, but things that people bring on you. And these are things that people brought on Paul. Beatings, imprisonments, tumults. That is caused by people. And you hear people say, you know... Um, Ministry would be great if it wasn't for the people. Uh, but that is ministry, see. Uh, any, you know, as you look at that, dealing with people, and people are going to cause these things. The beatings. They hinder his ministry for a while. The imprisonments, they stall him just a little bit longer. Maybe some work stoppage for a bit. The tumults, they, they forced him out of town. And town after town he went to. He's forced out because of the riots that come. And in fact, when they couldn't get him in one town, they fall into the next town, started a riot there. They stoned him in one place. Constantly facing these things that people bring on. And I got to tell you out there in ministry and reality of life as you walk out of here, but even right here, you know it. It's not anywhere else. It's here. People. Your roommate classmates, somebody anyhow that rubs you the wrong way. But it's going to be people, and they bring it upon you. And i got to tell you again, people are not your enemy. They're not, and don't let them ever be. Don't let them ever be. But people do bring distress and hardship to your life, and they will. More so in the future, maybe, than ever in the past. Notice the next one. The next three are things that you bring on yourself in ministry, labor, sleeplessness, and hunger. And the first one is working the point of fatigue. The next is sleeplessness. These are not things that the ministry forced in. They're things that he forced in himself. And if you are committed to God, if you are committed to God, and you're committed to ministry, you're committed to walking with God, i got to tell you, there are prices you're going to pay. You're committed to making it in school and doing a good job. They're going to be those sleepless nights. They just are. And as much as I watched three of my kids who were here at the time, you know, staying up all night and to do something, and I say, hey, at least get some sleep. You need to go into class so you can think straight, but no, you know, so all night long we cram for an exam. You know what? Nobody makes you do that. You do it yourself. And when you get out there, if you're committed to ministry, you're going to do it. You're going to go without sleep. You're going to work extra hours. You're going to go without food. There are times it's not going to matter to you whether you eat or not because all you're committed to is I've got to do the job. And it's much like Jesus. I have meat to eat you know not of. And there are going to be times when you drive yourself. And it's going to happen. My son, the one who had the accident, is planning to get married in two months. In fact, two months from today. And uh, part of the reality, he feels called to ministries in the seminary now. And part of what they've gone through. They watch ministry, and she says, this is what ministry is, and this is what I will put up with if I marry you. Yeah, and this is the reality you must understand before you do marry me. So I'm not telling you, it's not an ugly world. It's not a bad world. It's just a real world, okay? And it's out there, and you must understand that as you, if you're going to have a positive outlook in ministry, it isn't because you pretend problems don't exist because they do. All right? Number two. It is not only that. You must not only face it realistically. You must face it with endurance, steadfastness. Before he starts this list, the first word he gives us in verse 4 is with endurance. This is fortitude. By the way, I need to read something for you because Chrysostom said this, and I think it's interesting with regard to endurance. He makes this statement. Let me read this for you. He says, endurance, 
is the root of all goods. It is the mother of piety. It is the fruit that never withers. It's the fortress that is never taken. It's the harbor that knows no storm. It's the queen of virtues. It's the foundation of righteousness. It's peace in war. It's calm in the tempest. It's security in plots, which no violence of man and no powers of the evil one can endure. Um, you know what? It's, uh, the word is to bear up under. Not only do you not pretend problems don't exist, but you don't run away from them either, and we try to run away. We do. We're not maybe the ones, some people, trying to get away from problems. They go into drugs. They go into drinking. They go into whatever else they do. But some of us, we, we do the same thing, but in a different way. Uh, a friend of mine says you can tell when I'm facing problems because he didn't want to face them realistically and doesn't want to face them with endurance. He says you can tell because I go out and spend money I don't have. He says, nice looking coat, isn't it? You see, the issue is sometimes people go buy a lot when they're doing that. Some of us, some of us, when the pressure is too great, we head to the refrigerator. That's where it is because food will solve anybody's problem. I can tell you that, believe me. No, anyhow. So, so that's another way. I did have a sister-in-law at one time. When she got under pressure, she lost weight because she didn't eat. I mean, that's a great way to go. Wish I had more of that kind of pressure. But anyhow, it is that kind of thing. So you, you, you know, somehow we run away or we want to sleep, 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 sleep and hope somehow, somehow when we get up, the thing will be gone and we wake up and it really is still there. You know what? You can try to run away from the reality of problems and not face them, but you must biblically face them head on. And the way to have a positive attitude is not to pretend they don't exist and not to run away and try to escape from them, but to face them head on and to deal with them as they're there. Many a marriage I've watched where people are married and uh, you get married, it is eternal bliss at the beginning. That's why after I counsel people, I say, after you're married for six months or a year, come back and see me again. And then somebody came back after a year, and they were still in another world somewhere. So I said, come back and see me again. Because when reality sets in, the problems are there, the difficulties are there. You face them realistically. You face them head on. You don't avoid them, because if you avoid them, my friends, you only create more problems. Notice quickly the next he says, not only that, we face them realistically. We face them head on. But, but I take you down, if you will, further in this passage. And notice the next thing that he reminds us of. He says, not only that, but we're to face them with purity. After the list, the first thing before the list is endurance. And the, last, the first thing after the list, verse 6, is purity. Um, For many people who fall into sin and to get themselves messed up and stuff they shouldn't, it often happens at time of pressure. And what they do in pressure, the way they deal with it is by escaping into something they hadn't ought to do. Uh, years ago, uh, many years ago, in Washington, when there was a major problem taking place there, there was one of the men who was speaking out who worked for Lyndon Johnson at the time, and his statement is, he says, in Washington, he says, they take sex breaks. They don't take coffee breaks. Um, I've not watched the show, nor do I plan to, but there is a show that came on that is on now that is uh, depicting life in Washington. And someone who had been involved in that kind of life laughed when they saw it and said, uh, that is too true. What you see the problem with it is, you see in the midst of the pressure, they find a way to take care of the pressure either by drink or by sex. Now, that's not there only. 
I'm in a pastorate right now where I followed a man and it's part of what I am having to work through in the pastorate because there's a lack of trust of me because I've taken this role. But the man on a Saturday night was preparing a message and decided that he needed a break from it all and got into his car and drove in the valley and propositioned a girl and was picked up by the police and, and this kind of stuff, and it's, it's out there. And God says to us in this context, when in fact you face trials, you face them realistically, they're there. You face them with endurance. You bear up under them when they come. You face them with purity. And you in no way compromise the holiness and purity that God calls you to in the midst of the pressures you face. And some of you here, I just remind you of that. Purity is so crucial to your life and your walk with God. In the midst of pressures, all other kinds of pressures, don't succumb to giving in, to breaking down in that area that God so demands of us, holiness in. Notice the next one, if you will. He says that not only is there to be realistically facing trials and facing with endurance and facing with purity, but, but an interesting thing when he deals with this, he says, facing them also with love. You'll see it in several ways here. He says in the latter part of that verse, in genuine love. And then two words that come in here, patience and kindness, he has in this passage as well. You know, expressions of love, if you go to 1 Corinthians 13, patience is an expression of love, kindness is an expression of love. Patience basically is, is how, you know, love causes us to respond to people when in fact they are dealing certain ways with us. Kindness is the response we have to others when we are dealing with them. But let me talk to you about that for a while because... I just say to you from a husband's point of view, or from a father's point of view, sometimes there are pressures at work. And you watch this so often with people, the pressures at work, and, and someone can't take it out in their boss, they can't yell at their boss, they, they, they can't do that because they lose their job, so they're not about to do that. They can't express themselves there because they, they wouldn't, wouldn't be comfortable working there. But you know, somehow you can walk home and close the door and yell at your wife or yell at your kids or kick the cat or kick the dog. The very people you love the most are often the people you hurt the most in the midst of your own pressure. Okay, I always speak as a father now because so often even when young people are going through problems and I have children your age, okay, often the time of those times is not because they don't love their parents, but often the people they hurt the most in the times of their own pressure are the people that they actually know that they love the most. And so he says, you know, in genuine love, genuine love, not, not hypocritical love, not a fake love, but a real love. In the midst of pressure, we don't let it get the best of us. We face it realistically. We face it with endurance. We face it with purity, and we face it with love. Now, now you look at that and say, hey, that, that's a tall order. And, and how in the world are we going to be able to do that because that's just too difficult to do? And that's the beautiful part of what God does, always gives us the way. Look at this passage, if you will. There, there are things he does. First of all, look at verse 6. He starts in verse 6. He says, in purity, and then he says, in knowledge. What kind of knowledge? Just, just you know, knowledge. You go to class and get a good education. That's knowledge. No, it's, it's not that. Go down to verse 7 where he expands on it again. He says, in the word of truth. You know, what's going to make it for us? 
the first in the knowledge is a practical knowledge, and the, the knowledge, he says, he goes on to expand is a word of truth. How do you do this? And, you know, again, I remind you, the answer to it is the word of God. It's what's going to enable us to do it every time. You've got to stay in the word. You just have to stay in the word. Not just academically doing it, but somehow letting the word stay in us. Hiding God's word in our hearts so that we might not sin against him. And how do we keep from dishonoring God in the midst of trials like this that are going to be? How do we maintain the positive attitude, not the negative attitude? How do we keep ourselves going around campus in a positive mode instead of constantly, you know, knocking this and knocking that? How do we do that? First of all, by staying in the word of God. It has to be. The purity of life, the holiness of life, the genuine love comes out of a relationship with God's word that impacts our life so greatly. And then notice, if you will, the other statement he makes, and he makes it again this two times again, he makes it. Notice, if you will, in verse 6, he says, in the Holy Spirit. In verse 7, he says, in the power of God. The beautiful part about this book is that you and I are not strong enough to do this ourselves. If you go back, even just one chapter. You'll notice this, this incredible statement in chapter 4, verse 7, or two chapters, chapter 4, verse 7. We have this treasure, this gospel treasure, this ministry. We have it in earthly vessels. I mean, there's not one of us here who by himself or herself can live this way. We, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. We are weak. We are. Every one of us is. But you see, it is in earthen vessels that the surpassing greatness of the power may be of God and not from ourselves. The only way we make it is as God does this through us. It doesn't happen automatically. It doesn't happen naturally. It happens supernaturally by the word of God and through the Holy Spirit of God. And then if you go back with me to chapter 12, the great verses that he is concluding the book with. He says in there, there are problems he's facing. And by the way, it's interesting when, when he talks about these problems that he has a thorn in the flesh. Um, hearing from our president recently on the tape, and he made the comment that thorn in the flesh may well have been the fellow who was causing him the problem. That's one view of that. And it could have been. And if that's the case, it's interesting concerning this. I entreat the Lord three times, it might depart from me. And God sometimes doesn't take those people away, those pains away, whatever the problem was. But it really is immaterial in a sense because he says, you know what God said, my grace is sufficient for you. But notice, because power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I would rather boast about my weaknesses that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore... I'm well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulty for Christ's sake. See, I, I take all that stuff. Why? Because when I'm weak, then I'm strong. You can't do it yourself. What an awesome thing. I'm an ambassador for God. I'm a fellow worker with God. I'm a servant of God. And in that ministry with God, I'm not to dishonor him or discredit the ministry in any way. I'm to maintain an attitude, a positive attitude that sees the triumphant work of God in my life in every circumstance. And to do that, I must face the reality. Trials and testing will be there. They're here for you right now. I know that. I must face the reality that when they come, I must not run away from them, pretend they don't exist, try to avoid them, but deal with them. I must do that in purity, never compromising my purity for the sake of trying somehow to escape the reality of the problem I face. I must do it with love. I must not rip on roommates or friends at times of pressure, but rather find a genuine way to respond to these things in genuine love. 
But I can only do that as I fill myself with the Word of God and as He fills my life with His Word and as I walk in my weakness, enabled by His Spirit to become strong through His power. That's the reality of my life, and I trust the reality of your life. And may God help us not to in any way discredit his ministry by the attitudes that we have in the midst of the various pressures that we face. Let's stand together for prayer, please.